Okay. Let's turn to Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7. It's been three weeks, I think, since we last went through it. So let's have just a really, really, really brief review of what we've covered so far. We've covered Daniel 7 for two weeks already, to the two previous meetings. And the first meeting, we went through the four beasts. The four beasts, we know the first is lion with eagle's wings, and then a bear with three ribs in its mouth, leopard with eagles, or four wings of a fowl, I should say, and four heads. And then the fourth beast was dreadful and terrible, and it had ten horns. And then from out of those ten horns, three fell out, and then one little horn came out. We discussed that they would, this is a parallel prophecy with Daniel chapter 2. So it's Babylon, Medo Persia, Greece, and Rome. That's represented there. And then, the week after that, we went a step further into the judgment concept, which came right after the vision of the four beasts. And then the next step was the judgment. And from the judgment, we saw that it took place shortly after the little horn, but before the second coming. And uh, we saw that the judgment took place in heaven. The books were open. We discussed what those books were. And, um, and that's where we left off. So this week, this is what we're going to do. We went through pretty much most of the, uh, most of the vision. However, we haven't touched on the part of the vision that was emphasized the most. In Bible prophecy, many times we see God... He almost rushes through. We're going to see this again in chapter 8. He rushes through parts of the prophecy where he, all, he only gives maybe one verse of description or half a verse of description to a particular you know, object or place or event or person or being, whatever it is. And then he skips, you know, he just skips down, goes by real fast until he comes to where he wants to emphasize. And then God spends perhaps 20 verses or a huge chunk just dwelling upon this one point. And when we look at that, we have to try to think logically and simply. You know, the more that God is trying to explain this object or this person or this being or this event obviously means that this has special significance or we may even say more significance. So just off the top of your head of your knowledge of Daniel chapter 7 we've already gone through for those of you who were here we've gone through it for two weeks already what receives the greatest amount of emphasis or the greatest amount of detail and description in this chapter what's that? the whole chapter in general Now, let me just remind you that Daniel chapter 7 is neatly divided in half. There's 28 verses, and the first 14 verses is the vision. And then the last 14 verses is Daniel asking for clarification of the vision that he just saw. And so in the first half, and then the second half, let me ask you this. What is the primary part of the vision that Daniel asked for more clarification on. 
Go ahead. The little horn. Exactly right. That wasn't so hard, was it? But, you know, we need to be careful because I know that oftentimes we look at this chapter and we, ob- we say, well, the book of Daniel, the theme we already established is the judgment. And we see that the judgment is clearly mentioned. Therefore, the judgment must be the main point of chapter 7. The judgment, it is indeed a new aspect that was not introduced in chapter 2, or in fact the previous chapters. But it is yet not the main point or focal point that God wants us to dwell our attention upon. It is actually the little horn power. But in chapter 8, just as a little preview, in chapter 8, the main focus is the judgment. But in order for us to have to understand the concept of the judgment in chapter 8, we must understand the concept of the little horn in chapter 7. Does that make sense? Good. So this is what... This is how this, the little horn is broken up in this chapter. It's described in three major places in the chapter. Or I should say it's mentioned in three major places. And each time there's a little bit more given. So we're just, all we're going to do tonight, we're just going to go through each place and each verse that describes the little horn and to see what we can learn from there. So the first place as mentioned, we've already read it before, is chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. And this is actually, it's actually talking about the fourth beast, but the little horn is a part of that. So can someone please read those two verses for us? And this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, and it had a huge iron teeth, and it was, um, let's see, it it was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residues with its feet. It was different from the uh, from the other beasts that were before it, and had ten horns. I considered the horns, and there was a little horn, though another horn, a little horn, coming up from among them, uh, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out of, out by the roots. And there, in this room, oh, I'm sorry, and there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man with a mouth speaking pompous words. All right. Before we dive into these verses, for those of you who were here before, when we discuss Bible prophecy, when we're trying to identify a prophetic being, what are the two major characteristics that we must establish first? being or object or event what are the two major criteria or major characteristics we must identify these kingdoms. what's that beast resemble kingdoms actually before we even say that that's exactly right we have to establish the time and the location as long as we have these two Go, uh, guidelines. It's almost like it's the X and the Y axis. Axes. X, you can say, is location. Y is the time. If you know where it is and when it happened, you can basically pinpoint approximately where or who this object is or who this being is. So looking at the little horn, we've already done this in the past 
Actually, the last meeting we've already covered this, but I know a lot of us weren't here. So let's go through it again. We need, based on these two verses, God has already given us the time and the location of the little horn power. So let's start with location. Where does the little horn arise? Just give me what the Bible says. Among them. So among the ten horns. Now more specifically, we're going to make a short jump here. Verse 24. Can someone read verse 24? We'll come back to this, but let's look at it real quick. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier one. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time Times and half a time. Okay, that's good. And also verse 20. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. Alright, so this little horn comes up among the ten, but specifically it says that this little horn, or this king, it subdues three kings. And also in verse 20 it says that before whom three were plucked up. So it gives an impression like this is a tooth that's coming out, but it's coming out in such a way that it pushes out three other teeth. That's how I envision it. So in that case, where even more specifically does this horn arise? Among the ten, but specifically among the ten, where among the ten? Where three of them used to be, right? So already we can pinpoint really, really close where this little horn comes up. So we already established that from the Bible. It comes up where three horns used to stand. Now let's establish the time. The timing, really simple. It comes up, it says, before whom three were plucked up. So it comes up after three were plucked up. Does that make sense? And this is very simple, but very crucial. So now let's, let's, let's establish this. Where or who are the ten kings? The ten kings is our the th- uh, ten divisions of Europe. We already know the fourth beast is Rome. Ten divisions of Rome. And of these ten kingdoms, barbaric tribes, which three were plucked up? The three are the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. Now, I don't expect you to remember this, but it would be helpful for you to keep this in your memory bank somewhere. So these three were plucked up. So, first of all, location. Where were these three tribes located? Anybody want to venture a guess? Italy. Wow. Which ones? The Ostrogoths. That's right. Ostrogoths inhabited Rome for a while. What about the Vandals? Where are they from? 
Romania? <laughs> Not quite. Yeah. Uh, this is the story. The vandals, they are where we uh, derive our word vandalism. What happened was they, they are from northern Africa. And they would go in their ships up to Rome. They would land like the Vikings would. They would pillage and plunder and go on a rampage. And they would sack the city and steal everything. And hop back on their ships and go back to Africa. And basically that's where we derive the word vandalism. So vandals, they were actually very close to Rome. But in the northern part of Africa. And then the Heruli, they actually were like Ralph said, inhabiting uh, the Italian peninsula. So all three of these tribes, they all situated around Italy. So we can safely conclude that the Little Horn Power must arise somewhere in the vicinity of Italy, or what is modern-day Italy. And the next portion we have to explain is the time. So when were these three kingdoms uprooted? The first of all of them were the Heruli. And the Heruli were uprooted, let me check my date, 493. And then the Vandals were 534. And then the Ostrogoths, they were inhabiting Rome until 535. But at 535, they were kicked out of Rome, so to say. They were rushed out of Rome, but they were not completely destroyed until 538. Now, this is very interesting because all three of these um, tribes, they were pseudo-Christians and they held on to a heresy called the Arian heresy, which none of the other tribes held. And it was primarily for this reason that they were uprooted or for this reason that they were destroyed. Now, what is the Arian heresy? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but based on my understanding, it is that Jesus Christ was not 100% 100% divine, but that he was actually a human being that somehow achieved higher status than other humans. Well, and it was also that he was a creative being. A creative being. The, the term begotten of the Father made him a creative being of the Father. Who All right. achieved status of divinity. Okay, thank you, Norm. There you have it. Arian heresy. So that's why they were uprooted. Now, this is very this is, this is very interesting. We'll probably talk more about this later. But it's just the fact that these three were uprooted not for political purposes, but for religious reasons. And this already gives us a hint as to what is this power that's coming up. Because this power that came up subdued these three kings. And it was for the reason of religious convictions. So this power that's arising, it's not simply a political power. So we already see that coming up. So now the timing, the timing. The last of these three horns were uprooted completely. Some people say 535 or 538. The usual date set is 538. That's when the horn was completely uprooted and the Ostrogoths were extinct. So now we have, we have our two main posts or boundaries to work with. Number one is our time. The time is sometime after 538. And our location is somewhere in Italy. So that's pretty simple, right? Anyway, but the Lord, He gives us even more 
explanation. As you will see, he gave us so many descriptions as to who this little horn is that we cannot miss it. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. So let's keep going. We already established time and location. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. This is verse 8. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man. Now, based on your prior knowledge, what does that mean? Or what have you heard it explained as to mean? Eyes of man. Like, perhaps you heard it in an evangelistic crusade somewhere, or a sermon somewhere. What does that mean? That's really close. That's, that's what I've heard. I've heard that the eyes of a man represents that they have a prominent man as its seer or like its leader. But um, my problem with that is that every nation has a prominent man as its leader. Isn't that right? We had Nebuchadnezzar, and then we had Cyrus and Darius and Xerxes, Artaxerxes, and then we had Alexander the Great, and then we had, you know, Rome, we had the Caesars, right? So I don't think that explanation holds any water. So let's see what it means in the Bible for what it means to have eyes of a man. I need three volunteers. I'll just, I'll just call out the verses. Whoever gets them first can read it. First is Proverbs 27, verse 20. Actually, let's just go through one by one. We'll look at them together. Proverbs 27, verse 20. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of a man are never satisfied. Did we all get that? Let's read it one more time, Eric. Yep. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of a man, the eyes of man are never satisfied. So what do the eyes of man represent? Based on this verse, unsatisfaction, that's probably the best word. Yeah, covetousness also. It's the fact that eyes of a man, I know there's a Chinese saying that describing a little boy, I guess, usually, that his eyes are bigger than his stomach. Meaning he piles on his plate with all the food, but he doesn't know how much he can eat. He just bases it on what is good for food. So this represents the unsatisfaction of man with what he already has. The grass is always greener on the other side. We never have enough. We always want more and more and more and more. And this is exactly the characteristic of the little horn. little horn has eyes of man. It never is satisfied. It always is reaching for more. It never has enough. Let's Look at the next verse. It is Proverbs 16, verse 2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. All right. This one, all the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes. Or can we say a man's eyes sees himself as being clean. With the eyes of a man, we the one word I like to say put in this text 
is self-righteousness. He thinks himself as clean. And clean in the Bible is synonymous with righteous or justified in the spiritual sense. So the eyes of a man, this little horn power has this unsatisfied spirit, but yet he sees himself as righteous, as I am good enough, I am clean, I am all right. It is a, a proud, proud power. All right, third verse, Proverbs 3, verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Alright, this one is talking about our own eyes. Or, this is specifically talking to man. So, in man's eyes, the warning is, do not be wise in your own eyes. Or, do not trust your own eyes. But instead, fear God and depart from evil. Looking at the inverse of this text, what does that tell us about the eyes of man? Eyes of man does not fear God, and it does not depart from evil. So the eyes of man runs towards evil and runs away from God. It does not fear the Lord. And these are exactly the characteristics that we see for the little horn power. The eyes of a man, never satisfied, thinks I am clean, does not fear God, and also does not run from evil, or does not depart from evil. This is the little horn power. All right, let's move on. Daniel 7, verse 8. Can I ask a sure. But then the first beast has a, was given the heart of the man. Mm-hmm. So what's the heart of a man represent? The heart of a man. We established, uh, we talked about this when we covered the lion. Uh, first is that the lion heart is talking about the courage. And I don't, I don't have the verse right with me, but the heart of a man also represents the, the courage or the cowardice of a man. Because in the story of da- David and Goliath, mm-hmm. David says, let no man's heart fail within him. It's representing the courage of a man. A lot of times you hear, he has a lion heart. And the lion heart is talking about his valor, his bravery. Whereas, in this case, it was opposite. He was given the heart of a man. Yep. Okay, let's move on. Like the eyes of a man. And next is a mouth speaking great things. Now, what, is, what does a horn represent again? king. Specifically, it says a king, or that also represents a kingdom. Now, talking about a kingdom or a political power, how does a political power speak? Through the laws and the decrees that it enacts. Exactly right. When a nation wants to communicate, this is what we think or believe. This is the standard that we have. It sets forth a document that is law, simply put. So this 
little horn power speaks great things, or it passes legislation. So now, what does it mean, great things? We can, we can deduct a lot uh, from just looking at chapter 7. But for the sake of time, we're just going to look at Revelation. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13, verse 5 and 6. Actually, yeah, five and six. Anyone? So first, it speaks great things, and it speaks blasphemies. So putting, I don't want to, I don't want to equate great things and blasphemies. I'm not. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the connotation of the words that he's saying is against God. You understand what I'm trying to do here? When it says his his mouth speaks great things. The, the things that he's speaking does not necessarily mean the same thing as blasphemy. The Bible differentiates. He speaks great things and he speaks blasphemies. So I'm not saying that they are the same exact thing. All I'm saying is that because he speaks great things and he speaks blasphemies, we can deduct that great things is contrary to God. That's all I'm saying. And these great things, we say, are laws. Now, based on the eyes of a man, these are laws, first, that they are, never, it, it, it's a, they, they are laws made based on the characteristic that he is never satisfied. He thinks he is clean. He does not fear the Lord, and he does not depart from evil. So these laws, simply put, may I say, are according to man's wisdom and not according to God's wisdom. And they are contrary to God. So they speaks great things. Now, since we already went to Revelation, I'm just going to take a step further in explaining what it means to speak blasphemies. So it makes laws that are contrary to God, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more when we come to verse 25. But let's talk about blasphemies now. What does it mean to speak blasphemies? Just two verses. Actually, three verses. Mark chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Certain scribes sitting there and reading. 
So, what does it mean to speak blasphemies? That's not from this text. We're looking. We're going to go to that text, but based on this text, it simply says, "This man speaks blasphemies. Who can forgive sins other than God?" So, to claim to be able to forgive sins is speaking blasphemy. So now let's go to your verse. Now, Brandon, John chapter ten. Verse 33. Brandon, why don't you be that one then? But you answer him saying, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now we know in this verse that Jesus wasn't and he was not speaking blasphemy because he is God. But the Jews understood the definition of blasphemy, that is, making a man God. So this little horn power, although it is a human power, speaks blasphemies, makes itself God, and also claims to be able to forgive sins. So these are characteristics that we've seen so far. First, the time after 538. Location, somewhere around the vicinity of Italy. Eyes of a man, we went through all the characteristics wisdom of man mouth speaking great things speaks or passes legislation that is contrary to the will of God and also speaks blasphemy this is based on Revelation 13 claims to be God when it is man and also claims to be able to forgive sins Okay. now let's take a moment and just pause here has God has this vision at all explained or revealed the relationship of this little horn power with God's people. No, no, no. That's exactly what I don't want you to do. Just ba- up till here, up till verse 8, has there any, any revelation as to how this little horn interacts with God's people? There's nothing. All it does so far is give its, gives its description. But now, very interesting, the, verse, the very next verse, what is it beginning to describe? Verse 9. The judgment, exactly. Verse 9, all the way down to verse 14. It describes the judgment. So this is what God's doing in this vision. He went through first beast, second beast, third beast, fourth beast, ten horns, little horn. But then before he goes any further, he stops everything he's doing. He says, all right, Daniel, now look at the judgment. This is what's going to take place at the end. And in verse, let's look in verse 11. It says, I beheld, or Daniel beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. Now, just to remind you, Jesus said, by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. So Daniel's thinking, wait a second, he's speaking these great things that's contrary to God, and there's this judgment taking place. What's going to happen to this beast, or this little horn, and the beast that it's on? It says, I beheld even till the beast was slain, because you remember the little horn sits on top of the beast, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So God is, this is what God's doing. God, he is giving Daniel the assurance 
before he reveals what the little horns is going to do, he is telling Daniel, now Daniel, hang on, because this little horn will be destroyed in the end. It will not go on forever. God had to do that because of utter devastation that will take place. The horrendous picture that he's about to see about the little horn and what he will do to God's people. So you see, this is the, this is the story that's going through Daniel chapter 7. God gives a judgment picture in this chapter more so to comfort Daniel so that he will not become overly discouraged and in despair because of what will happen uh, during the time of the little horn. So this is what's taking place. So the judgment scene, we've already went through that in detail last time. He sees the end. All right. God's going to win this thing. All right. So then, let's go to verse 15. I'll just go ahead and read this. We're going to skip a lot of it because we covered it before. Verse 15 says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. Now, why was Daniel grieved and, and his, his body, or grieved in his spirit in the midst of his body, and he was troubled? Why? Just simply this. He saw that this little horn power was so terrible, so incredibly powerful, and then he went all the way to the end and he saw the end of it. But he, then he's still thinking, but what is this little horn power going to do? I still don't, he's still unsure as to what this little horn power's role is in world history. So he's, he's troubled. So naturally, this is what he does in verse 16. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So evidently there were some angels nearby. So he told me and made, known, uh, made me know the interpretation of the things. Great beasts are four kings. Uh, let's skip down to verse 19. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. Now verse 19, very interesting. If you look at the description of the fourth beast, it is almost identical to the description in the first half of the chapter. God did not feel like it was necessary to give any more description of the fourth beast. All right, verse 20. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. Ah, but look at the little horn. There was a little bit more. It says he was more stout than his fellows. Now the word stout, it doesn't just mean more sturdy or, or more firm or more rooted. The original word actually means chief. It means chief of the horns. More stout than his fellows, or he was the chief of the <coughs> horns. So this little horn ruled over the other, I guess, what is it? Seven horns that are left. So he rules over the rest of them. More, he was the chief. But then let's look in verse 21. Verse 21, it says, I beheld. Now, hold it right there. What does it mean when he says, I beheld? He's not speaking now. You remember from verse 15 until now, he's speaking with the angel. He's saying, I want to know more. Please explain this to me. And the angel is turning around to him and says, all right, this is such and such. But then Daniel says, and I beheld. So evidently, the explanation now is another vision. But this vision is, 
is not as is not as as long. Verse 21. Actually, verse 21 and 22. He's actually looking in vision. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. So verse 21 is what Daniel was afraid of. Daniel now he sees, oh no. This little horn, he sees in vision, he makes war with the saints, but not only makes war, it says prevails against them. Now I don't know what he saw, but the way that he's writing here seems to be pretty disastrous. He's seeing this little horn is just taking God's people by storm, making war with the saints, and evidently it looks like he's winning. But verse 22 says, Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Now, verse 22, when is this? What time is this talking about? Verse 22. Think very carefully. So let me ask you this. When is the time that the saints possess the kingdom? That's exactly right. The next step is, it says, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. When is judgment given to the saints? And after the second coming, there is a millennium where it says that they will judge even, you know, it will, they will be, judgment will be given unto the saints. So what, what this is saying, verse 21 and 22, this is an addition to the vision in the first half of the chapter. Daniel sees this little horn power making war with the saints, not only until the judgment that was described in verse 9 through, I guess, 14. He sees the little horn power making war with the saints until the second coming of Christ. So Daniel's vision now, he's understanding this is actually much bigger than he had originally expected. Because this little horn power, somehow it makes war with the saints all the way until the second coming. Now this is very, this is a little tricky. Because based on this chapter, the little horn power is supposed to end at the judgment. But, this is a preview. Let me just say this. We're not going to go too much in depth. But this is a preview of Revelation chapter 13. Daniel is dealing with more time past. But Revelation 13, when it comes, it will bring to light what it means that this will, this little horn power will persecute God's people all the way until the second coming because there's a break. And it, we don't see it clearly in Daniel 7, but God will magnify that in Revelation 13. So let's hold on to you, hold on to that, but let's keep going. So, the explanation, verse 23, fourth beast will be fourth kingdom, devour the whole earth, treasure the pieces, break it down. Verse 24, we already read that. Ten horns, ten kings. Arise another, the uh, subdue first three kings. Alright. Now verse 25. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Verse 25. And it says, He shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand, 
until a time and times and the dividing of time. So now, first of all, he shall speak great words against the Most High. We already established that. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Now, the word wear out, what kind of impression, what does that word, what does that What does that mean to wear out? Persistent. Persistent. Like when you say, I wore out my shirt or I wore out my shoes, that meant through excessive use. It's just constant. It's not just you broke it once. You just hit it really hard and you break it. It's not like that. It's more like you're just constantly rubbing it, constantly just tapping it, just using it until it's just no good anymore. That's the concept of wearing out. But when I looked at the definition of the word worn out or wear out, it's dealing more with the mental aspect. It's dealing more intellectually, mentally, more than physically. So this little horn power, he wears out the saints. It says he makes war with the saints. Yeah, we see that there's persecution and there's battles and physical abuse. But more than that, there is a mental element. There is a psychological wearing out of the saints. And how does that take place? To wear out somebody intellectually, you can do it a variety of ways. But it's much more than force. Through subtle innuendos, through subtle, constant just bombardment of falsehood of false teachings, of things that are not 100% correct, but just a little bit wrong, just constantly through this bombardment and this just wearing out, I guess that's the best word. He causes war against the saints. And this little horn power we know, we see that he does the same thing. And for how long? It says time, times, and dividing of times. But actually, let's pause before we go there. We haven't talked about things to change times and laws. Now, times and laws is simply talking about the times and the laws of God. Changing the times and the laws of God. Now, this little horn power is trying to change the times and the laws of God. But how? through speaking great words. Through his own laws, he is contradicting God's laws. And through his own laws, he is changing the times and the laws established by God. Now, I guess we haven't, if you haven't already figured it out, or you already know, we're talking about the papal power, the Roman papal church. And this power, by changing the time of God, and the law of God through speaking great words, the only way that it did that was by establishing legally through legislation Sunday sacredness. And that is how God, he changed God's time and his law. But taking it a step further, it also changed the time of God in terms of his prophetic time. Tried to take the 70 week prophecy and changing the second coming in terms of the secret rapture 
and all of these things. And also changing the law in the sense that they took out the second commandment and split the tenth, tenth commandment into two. Changing the times and the laws of God. Now, it says, And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Now, they. What is that? They. Talking about. They. But that verse is talking about so many things. They shall be given in his hand for time, times, dividing of times. The saints? But is that all? Yeah, we know. We know, sure, the saints, definitely. But is that it? Oh, it's some translation. My translation all it says is the saints. Would it be the other ten, the rest of the ten kings? Alright, let me read this verse one more time. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until the time and times and the dividing of times. It includes the times and the laws. So the saints and the times and the laws were given into his hand for time, times, and dividing of times. Now why is that important? Now, I'm, I am taking the liberty now of not going in depth in explaining the time, times, and dividing of time. It represents three and a half years. It represents 42 months. 1,260 days. You can establish that a day equals a year. Ezekiel 4.6, Numbers 14, verse um, 34. You can look at those yourself. I mean, there are plenty of sources that can explain that to you. I want to look at something more important than that. Just establishing the time period. It is just this. That is not just the saints that were given into his hand. Why is that? Because the 1260, or the Three and a half years, time, times, half a time. The beginning date is the beginning date of the little horn, which we established as 538. So 1,260 years later, that is 1798. But the persecution of the saints did not end at 1798. It ended a number of years prior to that. You see, the 1260 does not mark rigidly only the end of persecution. In fact, if you read Great Controversy, it says that persecution ended a quarter of a century before 1798. But when we look at times and laws, at 1798, it also means that the times and the law of God that the little horn was trying to change is no longer in his hand. So it is also after 1798 that the prophetic time of God and God's law, and specifically His Sabbath, which includes both times and laws, it is at that time that it is now free to come out of the hand of the little horn. More specifically, even the 2300 days. The time. The time which we will see in chapter 8. The time that the sanctuary is trodden underfoot. But we'll talk about that once we get to chapter 8. But now, but now this is where it gets really exciting. 
Okay? So 1260, 1798, after that, the saints, the times, and the laws of God will come out of his hand. All right, let's look at verse 26. 26, but the judgment shall sit. Now, this judgment is talking about the judgment in verses 9 through 14. It's a judgment before the end of time. But the judgment shall sit. And who? And they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy unto the end. So who is it that will take away the dominion of the little horn ultimately? It says they. And who is they? The saints and times and laws of God. Now how does that happen? There's going to be I mean, I'm going to take a few jumps and skips and hops here. The saints, first of all, we understand that in the great controversy, God's character must be vindicated by having a group of people that have Christ's character perfectly reproduced within themselves. The saints will have to vindicate the law of God or, or the character of God. But the time of God, it talks, it's talking about, I mentioned already, prophetic time. The 2300 days, the time of the investigative judgment the time of the investigative judgment and that prophecy comes in a time to vindicate the character of God, to take away the dominion, to cease the sanctuary being trodden underfoot in chapter 8. And then the law of God. The law of God is fully restored. And, it's, and Spirit Prophecy also says, when the law of God is placed in its rightful place, there will be a revival of primitive godliness. It is at this time, after time times half a times that the law is brought back into preeminence which is connected with the people of God obeying the law fully by the grace of and the faith of Jesus in the time of the investigative judgment that finally takes away the dominion of the little horn power that shall consume and to destroy it unto the end so you see at the end of the 1798 or the 1260 at 1798 the investigative judgment is the message we also understand through other studies it is unsealed the Sabbath is brought back into light the law is brought back into its rightful place the sanctuary is open for the final judgment to take place and then the God's people the saints they're no longer held in the grip of the little horn but now they are open brought out of darkness into his marvelous light so that they can fully understand the message and through the transformation of their character, they can then stand to vindicate God. And through that avenue, the little horn power's dominion will be taken away. Oh yeah, of course. Of course. That's right. And verse 27, And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey. Well, wasn't it military might that took it away when, like, well, when those two guys captured the Pope? That's, ex that's correct. But you remember that it is also foreshadowed that it will come back. In verse 22, you remember oh, it says, ultimately, it'll be ultimately, in the end. Straight till the end. But verse 28, Hitherto is the end of the matter, as for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, 
and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now why? Why was Daniel so troubled? A few things. First is simply this. Daniel didn't understand the vision. He could not understand all the vision. We're looking now in hindsight, after the great disappointment, after the 2300 days has been understood, after all of these things have taken place, that's why we can understand it. But Daniel, all he could see was, there's this little horn power that's going to arise and he will persecute God's people, wear out the saints, change the times and the laws, but somehow God will bring it to an end. That's all he could see. So Daniel, he was just a channel that God used to communicate this vision, but yet he himself did not fully understand this vision. And that's, that's saying quite a lot. For Daniel, he was a student of prophecy. But now, in conclusion, why is this little horn such a big deal? Why is, it, why is it that God had to go into so much effort and energy to identify, and to give so many identification marks so that we cannot miss this little horn power? Why is that? A couple of reasons that I, I concluded with. First is that this little horn power extends all the way to the end of time. And at the end of time is the final culmination of the result of sin. It is the final revelation of what sin really caused and the fruit of Satan's rebellion. In the, in, the, in the concept, looking through the perspective of the great controversy, God knew that it is going to be the worst at the end. And so he saw this little horn power as the ultimate fulfillment, the culmination of the sins or the fruit, or the, or the fruit, I should say, of the original sin of Satan. So God had to make it plain that this is the final picture. But also, it also um, brings to mind it's a, a quotation that says, not a quotation, but just a, I guess, proverb that says, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. So because God saw that this little horn is so powerful, and so deceptive. Jesus even says, if it were possible, even the very elect shall be deceived. He had to make it as plain as possible for his people not to be deceived. He had to make sure that they knew what was coming so that they could be prepared for what was take, going to take place. So God wanted to warn his people. And finally, this gives us a very clear timing especially the time times half the times prophecy, the time prophecy, gives us a clear timing for the beginning of the investigative judgment. Because then, when we come to chapter 8, even in chapter 7 we can see it somewhat, but in chapter 8, we can then clearly establish when the investigative judgment, the final judgment, will begin. So thus, the little horn power we have seen its rise, its reign, but ultimately we also know its end. So we have faith. Let us continue to study as we see that you know God has given us all of this warning. If we are in the end deceived, 
it is not because God did not give us adequate warning. It's because we have not been faithful in listening to what he has already given us. So with that, why don't we end? I know I'm a little late. If you have any questions, we can answer them at the end. All right, let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for teaching us from your word. As we have looked briefly at the uh, little horn as described in chapter 7, we realize, Lord, that there are greater powers that are working in this world. Lord, there are greater aspirations for us to achieve. Help us not to be focused on just our own individual lives, but help us to look on the things of others and, more importantly, to your plan for our lives. Help us, Lord, to be able to stand in the time that is coming. We know that there is a time now that is peaceful. There is a break uh, where the little horn has been wounded but is healing. I ask, Lord, that you give us the faith of Jesus, that we may cling on to you, that we may study your word diligently, that we may have the weapons uh, to fend off the darts of the devil. Help us, Lord, each day of our lives to live faithfully and to keep the uppermost in our lives. Keep us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name.